I brought that to my therapist. She was like, Reagan, I think she could tell I was spiraling in the way that like we ADHDers do where we're like minimizing our own stuff. She was like, if it helps, I'm, I'm a professional here. Like you have ADHD. You don't need to say that you're putting this on yourself. Like this is a confirmed thing. So we can like move on and, and kind of that like validation just helped so much to be like, you are not crazy. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is real. Don't talk yourself out of it. Like don't minimize what you've gone through and what is real. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45 and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Welcome back to my special top 10 replay series, where I'm re-releasing 10 interviews that really stood out to me and have stayed with me in some particular way, either because of the topic or the conversation or the feedback I receive from listeners. For many different reasons, I've chosen these 10 episodes that I feel deserve a replay. So maybe you missed this one the first time around and you'll get a chance to hear it. Or if you listened to it back when it originally aired, I hope you'll enjoy listening to it again. This week, I'm re-releasing my interview with Reagan Cotton, which originally aired in December of 2021. Reagan had reached out to me because she had been an avid listener of the podcast, and while she related to many of the stories of my more seasoned guests, she wanted to share the perspective of a 20-something who had recently graduated college, was facing independence and young adulthood, and had recently been diagnosed with ADHD. After the episode aired, a lot of my younger listeners reached out at the time to express their appreciation for this episode. And Reagan is so wise and thoughtful and insightful. I think there's a lot in here for adults of any age to relate to. And make sure to stick around because at the end of the episode, I check back in with Reagan to see what's changed for her since the original interview, including her advocacy and her nonprofit work, and what it's been like going off her parents' insurance and navigating the medication shortages in the U.S., So here, as part of my top 10 replay series, I give you episode 64 with Reagan Cotton. Reagan is 25 years old and lives in Denver. She works for the political advocacy nonprofit New Era Colorado. Reagan actually reached out to me because she is a listener of the podcast and noted that a lot of my guests are older and she felt she could offer an interesting perspective on what it is like to be facing ADHD in early adulthood at this particular moment in history. Reagan was born in 1996, so she is literally right on the dividing line between millennial and Gen Z. And we talk about the various assumptions and stigmas that were held around ADHD and mental health as she was growing up and how some of them might have differed from older generations like mine. We also talk about what it's like to get this diagnosis during the pandemic as a young adult, as well as the various ways ADHD is still being overlooked and dismissed in girls and young women. I really appreciated and enjoyed Reagan's perspective, and I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. Yeah, I was really interested when you reached out to me because it's true. I started this podcast because I was diagnosed at the age of 45. And so I like looked out, uh, looked back at the span of my life through motherhood and, and university and babies. And it was just like ADHD everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, like I have a tendency to interview a lot of women who are in the same position as me. Oh, and perimenopause. Like it's just, you know, this whole long laundry list of all of these ways in which it manifests itself. And so I'm always, I love whenever I hear, you know, women in their twenties are listening to the podcast and relating too, because I feel like it's my gift to you, right? I'm like, if you can avoid the 20 years of depression and anxiety and and questioning that some of us went through, I feel like that would be so wonderful. Um, So when you reached out to me and you were like, you know, I feel like generationally, there's a lot of interesting, you know, just, I feel like you have a lot of thoughts and I want to hear about them because I think it is super interesting to kind of find out what it's like you know, I have had guests who were diagnosed in their twenties, but just sort of what Mm -hmm. it's like in the moment and also 
with what we know. Cause often when I interview women who were diagnosed either in childhood or in high school or in, or in even in their twenties, that was 20 years ago. And, and it yeah. still felt like even if you were diagnosed, it didn't matter because nobody knew anything about ADHD or what it looked like mm-hmm. in women. And we're only just really coming to like a, an explosion in terms of our understanding about what it is and and yep. what no, it looks like sure. and how different it is for women and men. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so I can't wait. Um, so let's get started. Uh, first of all, Thank I want to hear about your diagnosis and when you were diagnosed and kind of what was going on for you that led you to think maybe this is ADHD. For sure. There's like, I know, I feel like for all of us, there's like so much to it. It's hard <laughs> to even get it into one, uh, one kind of snapshot, but yeah, like you were saying, so I'm I'm 25 now. I was diagnosed when I was 24. It's been interesting for sure growing up like undiagnosed. And I think actually really the most interesting thing is that I have two younger brothers. Um, one of them is two years younger than me. And he was diagnosed pretty much right off the bat when he was like, I don't know, 12. He started having a lot of like academic problems and it just was like, all right, let's, let's get him tested. Let's do all the stuff. And I mean, in a lot of ways, like he is and was like the stereotype of like, you know, when you say, oh, you get this ADHD diagnosis, you think of the little boy climbing around on the walls. Like that was never me. That was my brother. (laughs) So, you know, it was pretty easy, I guess, to just see that and be like, uh, like for the people around us, for students, uh, or sorry, for teachers around us and, and like our kind of community to just be like, oh, yep, done ADHD. And then like, I kind of was two years older. I did not get um, any of that recognition or like awareness really at all um, until I kind of sought it out on my own when I was really struggling um, at a later time in my life. But yeah, it's, it's been definitely interesting. So I actually in high school, well, I should go back a bit. I have always been told, you know, oh, you're so smart. Like you're so capable. You're so this and that. And I've always in a way like known that, but I've also never really felt like I've been successful in the ways that I want to be successful. And I've like never really been a good student academically, like just not, (laughs) you know, in a way that I think when you like talk to neurotypical people and you're like, oh, I wasn't a good student. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we all get in. No, like I was really not a good student. Like I don't think y'all, uh, y'all know what, what I'm saying. <laughs> so yeah, I just was really struggling in school, but I always kind of got by, like, I don't know if it's because of my gender. I don't know if it's because I was like, just kind of more quiet and, and reserved where I kind of flew under the radar in a lot of ways that I was struggling. Um, honestly, I, in middle school, I started like copying homework off of my peers and like really just kind of trying to get through in whatever way that I could without like letting anyone know that like, I I mean, I didn't even know I was struggling. I just couldn't do it. I just was like, I'm trying to keep doing these things that everybody says you have to do to be successful. And like, I I didn't know how to do that. So I was just trying to figure it out kind of the best way that I could always. And, you know, it's so funny because like looking back, I totally would sit in class and like talk to like the boy next to me. And then the teacher would come around and be like, hey, like, James, stop talking. Like, you're distracting Reagan. And it was, like, very often that they would not see me as, like, the troublemaker kind of because I was generally pretty quiet and reserved. But then I'd be, like, bouncing off the walls, you know, like, talking to the students next to me. But they just, they wouldn't expect it. So that was kind of interesting always. And there's, like, a 100 examples of things that I messed up and didn't, like, succeed in in the academic world um growing up and just I feel like I never read a single book that we were supposed to read through high school like I just would like listen in class when they were discussing the like the book report or whatever and I would get through somehow and I would understand the big picture enough that I could like figure it out connect the symbolism and kind of just make it through so I mean I don't know. You know, I think that's a pretty ADHD thing, but definitely had some funky coping mechanisms always. And so then in high school, I was like really struggling. I couldn't really get by with my kind of sneaky coping mechanisms that I now know are coping mechanisms as well. Um, I was struggling a lot more academically, but like still in the case that I was getting by, I was getting B's, C's, even though I was like, 
I was like failing tests, but then I do all the homework. So then I like got all the points to like get me to this kind of average, you know, fly under the radar. But I was really struggling. I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with anxiety. My anxiety got really bad when I was in high school, like out of control. I I felt like I could not function. I couldn't do anything. And it was at that time that, I mean, I was like going at it with my mom all the time. We were like, my room was a mess. Like I could not keep it clean and just like really struggling with like day-to-day things outside of school and like the things that my peers were doing, like applying for colleges was like really not something I even knew how to do or like what to do. And I did have a lot of support, but it was just really, it became really difficult. Um, and I actually thought like, I believe it was like my senior year of high school. Once I did start getting like treatment for my depression and anxiety, I was seeing a therapist at the time. And I kind of was like, I think independently, I was like, I think I have ADHD. Like I really cannot do a lot of these school things. And at the time I was really just thinking of kind of the main first thoughts that people think folks with ADHD struggle with like school, you know, and then when you get older, like work, but I had no awareness of like the emotional regulation, like the kind of greater sensory overwhelm things at the time. So I was just saying like, I really can't do school. I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. I tried talking to my mom about it and like, bless her heart. Like she looked at me and was like, well, look, like she, you know, she looked at me, she looked at my little brother and she was like, you are not the same. He's got ADHD. Like he checks all the boxes. Like, yep. And she was like, I think you're just really depressed and anxious. Like, and then was kind of just like hesitant. And so then I really didn't know. And I obviously didn't know that there were gender differences. I didn't really like look into it too much. It was just one of these like fleeting things. And so then we, I went to my psychiatrist And my mom came with me and we had like a discussion about like, do you have ADHD? And basically they were kind of like, maybe, eh, you know, like my, my, my mom just kept being like, you are not this running around. Like you don't have these things. You do not check these boxes. Like you're different, you know, you're intense. Like there were these other terms used, but really it kind of was like chalked up to depression, anxiety the psychiatrist did give me one prescription. Like she was like, well, let's just, let's just see how it goes for um, Ritalin. And I remember I took it like once, maybe twice. And it made me feel so sick. Like I had such bad side effects that I just was like, I can't do this. Like, no. And I never took it again. And then was your brother continued on. He was on and off, but not really ever consistently. He really didn't get a ton of treatment in that realm. I think he's doing a lot more now as he's gotten older, but his support came more in the sense of like, he was transitioned to a smaller private school um, with much smaller classes and like a lot more teacher attention and teacher Mm -hmm. focus. Whereas Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I like to say the guinea pig, I was the oldest I was enrolled in our big, bigger public high school where I was a number, not a name. Like teachers didn't really know me that well. And I I could fly under the radar. And so that's kind of what I did. And my brother got support in different ways, like academic, uh, you know, changing schools. Whereas I was like a junior at that point, it would have been a lot for me to change schools. And I didn't really want to, honestly, it would have disrupted everything. But yeah, not really like dabbled in it, tried it, but I don't think he was ever truly medicated in like a consistent way. So yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Okay. So then, so you, you went to the psychiatrist and they thought, okay, you might have ADHD. Maybe what, what then happened? Yeah. It was kind of like a, well, we'll give it a shot. Like, I don't know. It was a oh, bizarre right. That's interaction where we were. To Sorry. start. No, <laughs> so you took good. the Ritalin and you, it didn't feel, you, you made you feel nauseous or yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I went off to college and I was super busy. I, I moved from um, Southern California to Denver, Colorado, where I live now to go to school. Um, and yeah, I just kind of was like thrown into college and kind of forgot about the ADHD thing. You know, I was definitely still struggling with depression, anxiety but it's really hard to get treatment for that when you're a college student, even on campus. I remember like if they were going to continue prescribing me my antidepressants that I was taking, it was $110 copay every time. And they made you go every like month to check in. 
And I did another time, didn't have the money. Like that was half my paycheck, you know? Um, so I kind of just stopped, let it all go, powered through college. Um, definitely, I definitely like loved my classes. I know that that's like definitely an ADHD thing, <laughs> but I started studying criminology and within sociology and political science and psychology. And I just got like so sucked in. I loved it. I still love it. I wish I could go back and just do school like that forever, but only take the classes that I want to take and the ones that are interesting to me. And if you look at my GPA for like my common core classes, ones you have to take, and then the ones that I chose to take, it's like worlds apart. I mean, you could just see it. It was like C minus C versus like I was doing really well in my other classes where I could write and read. And I know I could always do that with attendance too, right? Like the classes yes, I loved, yes, I would be yes. there no matter what time of day it was. And then the classes I, that you could tell I was just like desperately trying not to flunk. I yeah. <laughs> never yeah. go to. Just yeah. got by. Exactly. So yeah, that was that. And I definitely like struggled. There's a ton of ways that I could... <laughs> one of the questions you asked is like, what are some of the things that you look back and see were definitely ADHD? Like in college, I wrote this paper one time. Obviously I wrote it the night before it was due. I misread the prompt. I missed a key detail that said like, pick one example and, and write your paper about this. And I missed that. I picked, I think two or three and I structured my paper around like two or three different things. And the professor, I remember wrote, you didn't follow the prompt too bad it's a really good paper C and Ugh. I just remember being like what like first I was so mad I was like what is he talking about and then of course I reread the prompt and I'm like it says one like <laughs> write one example like what the heck like what is wrong with me you know so there's like a ton of examples like that um that just stand out through college and you know I, I did make it through like I'm very grateful <laughs> for that but yeah, then what, I guess mid 2020 or beginning of 2020, I was having a lot of trouble like with depression, anxiety, and I don't now know, I know why <laughs> untreated ADHD amidst general chaos. So yeah, that's kind of where I was like, I'm really struggling. Like I was stuck in my house all the time. I'm working remote. I do love my job, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just stuck in my house. There is so much going on. Just, it feels like everything's compounding. I had a lot of family stuff going on at the time. And so I just, I was really feeling out of control, like in a way that I hadn't felt since pr probably high school when I was at my worst mental health space. And I was like, you know, took a lot of time, took a lot of dealing with insurance and figuring out online, like how to get help. But then I got connected with a therapist and pretty early, like I think at our intake, she kind of was like picking up on some things and was like, have you ever like considered ADHD? Like, and I explained, you know, oh, in high school it was dabbled with, but never really, nothing came of it. She was like, let's just do this uh, quick exam, like this quick assessment. And I mean, I checked literally all the boxes, like, and I didn't, I, even then I still was like, oh, okay. I like continued on. And it wasn't until like a few weeks later where I just was like, oh my gosh, like everything makes sense. Like, this is it. Like, oh my gosh. And she was the one that introduced me to like, look like women, like femme presenting people, like do a lot to hide this and do a lot to uh, display like these traits differently than men. And that's kind of your stereotype. So that led to my diagnosis. Everything in the world suddenly made sense. I had a full night of like maniacally journaling, just like, and this thing, like recounting my entire life, you know, being like, and this thing happened. Oh my gosh. And the laundry, like, and this, <laughs> ah, that's why I can't do this thing in the morning. Like I could never do anything in the morning. And I just, I never knew, like, that was a thing. I always was like, I can't work in the morning. Like I can't do it. I need some time to warm up, like more time than other people need. So yeah, that's what led to my diagnosis. And it's honestly changed everything in my life. That's so. amazing. I love hearing yeah. stories when, when, you know, when a therapist either suggests it or is like fully on board, because I feel like there's so many 
stories where women are like, no, I was, they, they think I'm just depressed and anxious. And I was yeah. like, if a therapist is not willing to see the connection between a life of depression and anxiety and being undiagnosed, like, then they, you need a, you yeah. need a second opinion because it's yeah. just like, you know, even when you were talking about, um, going with your mom and like that idea that like, well, you don't exhibit these hyperactive um, symptoms that your brother did. So maybe you're just depressed and anxious. And it was like, no, there's no such thing as being just depressed. <laughs> like yeah. you have to figure out what the source is. And it, with so many of us, it was this fact that like, we felt like we didn't know what was wrong with us. Or like you were saying, like, I just can't do the thing. And it's not like, I don't want to, it's not like I, you know, don't feel like it. Like there's a legitimate paralysis there that is really, really difficult to articulate. Yeah. Yeah. And not knowing if like, I'm like, am I making this up? Like, is this, am I lazy? You know, like, why can't I do this? Just that feeling of like, why can't I do this? Like yeah. what is happening? For and then sure. also like, well, and just, you know, also I think your story is so similar to so many of us in terms of like, you, it's never noticed in, uh, with teachers, if you're not being disruptive, right. Which, so, you know, if you are not, um, jumping around, if you're not like, you know, kicking chairs or doing whatever, annoying the teacher, then why would the teacher bother to, to suggest it or even diagnose it? Like all of those diagnoses in boys when they're kids is because they were disruptive. And so the teacher's like, we need to fix this. Uh, we need to make this person less disruptive and girls mm -hmm. are so much more inclined to, be likable, right? And and to try to like exactly. behave. So I thought it was interesting when you told the anecdote about the boy who got in trouble. Oh, I <laughs> could think, think of like so many times. Gender, yeah. um, gender stereotyping right there. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're distracting Reagan. Like um, <laughs> she's trying to work. Like now I'm looking back, like, oh my gosh, like what did yeah. I do? I know I didn't even realize that until after my diagnosis, how many times I was separated from the group in elementary school mm. and middle school where like we'd be in these like desk clusters and my teacher would pull my desk away or I'd have to sit all uh. by myself or I'd have to sit next to the teacher's desk as punishment because I was always talking. And I was like, oh, like I never would have remembered. I never would have remembered that if I hadn't been like thinking back about like what yeah. were the signs when I was a kid? What an isolating feeling too as a kid to be like, oh, I've been pulled aside and, you know, I got to sit by the teacher. Like that's not a good feeling. Oh, I know. Oh, don't even get me started. Yeah. <laughs> not good. Uh, and then also that, that stereotype, I think we fall into a lot, which is like, you can't possibly have ADHD because you have good grades, you know, or like this, this reinforcement of the stereotype that ADHD only happens to people who are like a total hot mess on the outside and, you know, demonstrably a hot mess. Whereas so many of us do really well in school and so many of us do really well in our jobs and we actually mm -hmm. are quite high functioning. And so mm -hmm. people say you can't possibly have ADHD and you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, that's what you're seeing there's the, that's just the iceberg, you know, like the iceberg analogy yeah. of just like, you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> Absolutely. I really felt that even when I was given the diagnosis, like I had so much doubt of like, is this a thing that I'm putting on for myself? Like, am I just saying that I have ADHD to make myself feel better? Like say that this isn't my fault and to like dismiss that blame I brought that to my therapist. She was like, Reagan, I think she could tell I was spiraling in the way that like we ADHDers do where we're like minimizing our own stuff. She was oh, like, absolutely. if it helps, I'm, I'm a professional here. Like you have ADHD. You don't need to say that you're putting this on yourself. Like this is a confirmed thing. So we can like move on and, and kind of that like validation just helped so much to be like, you are not crazy. Like this is, mm -hmm. this is real don't talk yourself out of it. Like don't minimize what you've gone through and what is real. Yeah. Right. I try to remind myself of that all the time, which like that impulse to that, that impulse to self-doubt, that constant questioning, and then the mm -hmm. subsequent minimizing, like yep. that is the ADHD talking all of that. Exactly. Exactly. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, 
coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The Lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Okay. So now you talked a little bit about how life has changed since your diagnosis. I feel like we have that, you know, that emotional roller coaster of like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this explains everything. Um, but then also followed by like, wait a minute, I'm still in isolation. I'm still in the pandemic. I still can't work in the morning or all of Uh these like ways in which you now have to kind of manage what, what you now understand as ADHD. Mm -hmm. What, how do you think, how do you feel like life has changed for you? since your diagnosis? Yeah, it's changed a lot, honestly, just having that awareness, like being able to tap in and recognize like what is happening as it's happening, specifically with like being overstimulated has helped me so much recognizing like, you know, I would come over to my partner's house after a long day and I'd get to his place and he's watching like a football game or something or a game. And I'm trying to talk to him and like the game is on in the background and like where the dog is running around and we're trying to figure out dinner. And I would just like freak out sometimes. And then he'd be like, what is like, are you good? And I was like, it's loud. Like, but I never really knew why that was the case. And so it was hard for both of us. Um, And now I guess recognizing that, like I'm able to be like, okay, like I can support him in doing the things that he wants to do and like remove myself or even have that anticipation of like, this might be a little overwhelming and I know why. And I can um, use that to kind of like better mediate the situation to prevent me from getting past that threshold. That's been really helpful with like the emotional regulation piece and just knowing I get stressed when there's weird noises. I can't talk when the TV's on or, you know, this or that is happening. That has helped immensely. I'll also say I am now medicated, not with the Ritalin that made me sick, but it has helped so much. And what are you taking instead? Yeah, I take Vyvanse now. Okay. And it's been much better, much, much, much better. We I had a lot of support from my psychiatrist and my therapist, which has really helped me because I had a lot of apprehensions about taking this medication. I think that's another thing, like growing up and and being the age that I am and growing up when I grew up, like I had such a stigma around medications and I still have some anxiety, but I like to think it's a healthy anxiety, but just growing up and being like, you know, seeing my peers abusing this, like this, 
yeah, I'm hearing it in the news and you're seeing articles on like that this medication is being abused and it's being over um, administered. And, you know, I don't really know the details on all that, but I know that I saw my peers in college and, and even high school, like abusing this medication and, and using it to like become like a superhero and all this stuff. And so I was like, very scared to take it as like always been a rule follower. And also knowing I can be really impulsive of like, is this what I really want to introduce in my life? Like what type of uh, like crutch is this going to be? And how could this like spiral out and create more problems in my life when I don't want that? But it's helped so much. Yeah. Well, and also we have addictive personalities and tend to self-medicate. Exactly. (laughs) I've never smoked a cigarette because I know I cannot (laughs) smoke a cigarette. You know what I mean? It's not just one. Yeah. I've never let myself do it once. And so I definitely have that addictive personality that I think is quite uh, not not alone in that. Um, But really like talking with those professionals and understanding like, this is like true support. Like people take medication for all different reasons, like working through that stigma, knowing that I like have professionals supporting me who like they're, you know, they're going to know if if things go out of hand, like that's, that's their job. They've got my back. And like, that feels really good just to lessen that personal anxiety. And then also like, I believe it was my therapist was like, look, Reagan, like, even if you want to take this for, if you take this for a year, that's what you decide is the best thing. Like, really the goal is to like have enough space in your brain to build the tools, to build the practices and like the coping mechanisms and strategies that are going to be healthy. And if you use this to support you through that, um, then, you know, we could revisit, like, obviously I was, I can always decide to, to stop or, or change. I have tons of agency in that way, but just being like, look, after a year, you can say, I don't want to take this medication anymore. And you're probably still going to be way better off because like I'm working with this therapist, we're um, working on skills, we're working on that regulation and like having the space to implement and actually build these practices into habits has been so, so helpful. So that's definitely changed in a, in a really good way. Yeah. I love that. That's a great perspective too you know, I've talked about this with other guests of my history with uh, antidepressants. It's always sort of feeling mm-hmm. I would get trapped in that cycle yep. of like, this medication doesn't feel like it's working. So let's up the dose. And then I would have oh, that yeah. constant questioning, which is like, okay, if this is how bad I feel on the medication, imagine how bad I'll feel off the medication. Exactly. And so that I have to keep upping the dose and never being like, maybe this is the wrong medication, but just, I guess, always feeling like, so much mental real estate was taken up wondering if the medication was working. And then I'd be like, you know what, maybe it's just easier to go off everything Mm -hmm. and start from, Mm -hmm. you know, start from scratch and like, what's my baseline. And so I like the fact that you are, you know, the handholding that you're getting from your therapist and just in terms of like, this medication is supposed to free up that mental space. Mm -hmm. as opposed to making it feel even more crowded, which is what I sometimes think medication does. (laughs) Yep. I had the same experience when I was in college taking antidepressants as well too, like very much the same. And I was just like, I'm done for like a lot of reasons. Like the finances were some, the time, the energy, all of it. I was just like, I can't do this. I stopped. And it was what I had to do at that time. And I think it really got me to where I am now, (laughs) but I do wish I had more support uh, at that time. Well, and then you think about, the quote unquote abuse of stimulants, right? With mm-hmm. in college, especially, and how it's gotten this reputation of being this controlled substance and it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. And like the way in which it seems to be going, it seems to be splintering off from like SSRIs and antidepressants. Like when like antidepressants are so easy to get, they're like yeah. pennies, pennies a, a bottle compared to the expense that so many of us, especially in the US, are experiencing with it with stimulants, right? Like it blows my mind, the the hurdles that we have to go through in order to get this Mm -hmm. medication and the overwhelming expense so many of us have to have this medication. Um, I don't know what I'm getting at. I guess just the stigma that is rising with stimulants. And it's the, the, the stigma is from the fact that it's being abused, right? And I don't think it's necessarily being abused. I think it's just being used in, in Absolutely. An, a, a, like 
in a way in which like, if it was more available, if it was more widely available or if, or if young people understood the, you know, what was happening and that this was helpful to them. Like, yes, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like no, I'm not I articulating it well. Where like, nobody's abusing it. The narrative is what I had always held and seen yeah. as being so problematic. Like, you're absolutely right. Um, but you're right. We fear it. We think it's like scarcity. Cocaine. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, even just thinking like of being on a college campus and, and how drugs, various drugs are more or less acceptable, like the social implications of that, like the racial implications, the the history of different medications and where they come about and who is allowed to have what is, is fascinating to me, but just the narrative was a big thing. Just growing up and being like, Oh, that's like meth. Like they're giving kids meth. And that's what I grew up hearing. So then it's like, I'm in high school struggling and I'm like, I don't want to take meth. Like what? That That's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. And having to really unpack that and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this is not where we are. This is not what it is. And that was definitely the case. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. What other kind of observations do you have in terms of Gen Z, millennial, Gen, I guess you're still millennial, right? Gen Z is, (laughs) yeah. Gen Z is still younger. I feel like millennial is a huge category. I know I'm on the cusp. I was born in 96. So I never know where I fall in that, but I'm definitely straddling a weird line. I think really that the gender difference comes with just omitting in what we think about ADHD as just omitting the like emotional regulation, omitting the non like school and work pieces are the things like I see it as I don't know how to articulate this, but just when you're struggling in like school or you're struggling in work for some reason, like that is much more accepted and like validated than struggling with those emotional and like interpersonal kinds of things. And I think in a lot of ways, like that has led to, I mean, there's a ton of reasons why men are are diagnosed more than women, but I think it's like, oh, if there's a man struggling with work or with school, like that's a big problem. We need to be sure that that person is getting a lot of support, not really considering like, of course, men have emotional regulation problems too. And and those are valid and need to be treated as well. And then, you know, we have women on the other side who we're going to go through way greater lengths to still succeed in these academic and like traditionally, you know, male masculine dominated spaces. We're doing a lot more to get through and to be seen as successful. But when we're struggling with our mental health, like that's not validated. That's, that's, oh, you're depressed, but you're anxious. And there's not this urgency of like, oh my gosh, why are all of these women struggling? Why are all these people struggling? And it's really like what we as a society prioritize. And, you know, that's doing well in school, that's doing well in in work and really is dismissive of the fact that we're all people with like very wide scopes of life. And, you know, we're more than our like capitalistic output. We, we have merit in and of ourselves and our, our health and our well-being and that healing is so important. So I think that's kind of a big thing that I've seen just um, in those gender differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, your generation has the crippling student debt. Absolutely. <laughs> which, which, you know, so you have that butting up against the overwhelming pressure to like succeed in your 20s. And because you're seeing all of these like social media influencers and TikTok mm-hmm. influencers who are, you know, making piles of money at such a young age. And it's, I feel like there's, you know, the pressure is much greater on your generation in terms of like success at a young age Mm -hmm. when it's just impossible. I mean, like the, you have, you still have to go, you still have to get a college education, um, but then you end up with crippling debt for the rest of your life as a result. (laughs) But there's still that pressure that you have to like live by yourself and, and, have all of these accommodations, like having, you know, mm-hmm. the great house and car and a career yeah. that just aren't available to you anymore. And yeah. yet it's the, the reality just doesn't reflect the dream 
in a way that I Not think didn't exist all. for my generation at all. Yeah. And the stakes are higher. I mean, like you said, like you come out of college with all this debt. I have debt and most of my peers have debt. And it's this, all right, you got six months before you're going into repayment. Like, what are you going to do? You better, uh, better get on that. Like better find a job. And there's not a ton of great job opportunities. There's not a ton of, um, you know, resources for finding that. And you are just pushed really hard, really fast into like real adult world. And the stakes are really high. You now have loans. You now have all of these things. You rent is astronomically high and, you know, we're way underpaid as like a generation and just looking at inflation, looking at how, how we as a generation are doing, like the stakes are really high and it's very hard. It's really hard. People don't know what to do. They feel lost. And then we're in the middle of an environmental crises. And I know a lot of young people, a lot of people my age, neurotypical or neurodivergent are feeling really compelled to move to work that they are passionate about. And unfortunately, that work doesn't often pay very well. Mm -hmm. So stakes are definitely higher as well. Yeah, that's nothing new. I (laughs) I remember it's not. But I do remember feeling like having this realization with my teenager recently where I was like, your generation is really the first who doesn't know if you're going to make it to adulthood. Like I sort of feel like there's this nihilism that's in all of your life decisions, right? Like I'm like, why have children? What is it? We're destroying the earth. Like there's an imminency to the the destruction of the earth that didn't exist when I was in my teens and twenties. And so- you know, there was always that question of like, do I have children? Do I not? And we had all, obviously mm-hmm. as women had a lot more um, opportunities to, you know, there was less pressure to sort of be mm-hmm. a housewife and any of that. But like, I feel like with a much younger generation, like this is really the first time where you face all of your life decisions with the sense of like, we may or may not make it, you know? And, and like, how That's does so that true. even, like, I was thinking of this out loud with my teenager and then I stopped mm-hmm. myself and I was like, God, am I like, destroy like I was like should I even not mention this am I a bad mother if I'm even mentioning that this reality exists but like I was like how does that even affect any you know of the way you approach decisions you know like how does it approach saving money you know why bother you know how does it approach like working towards anything you know with that looming sense in the background of always just being like well we're fucked anyway so what's the point yep and that's yep. like, feels and I, like that defines their generation. Yeah, it does. And I, I don't know like how much of this is like ADHD. I do think I suspect some of it, but like, I get pretty infatuated with like these thought loops, you know, that rumination of like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Like, what am I doing? Seeing that bigger systems connect, I think for me and, and just my passions has been both a blessing and a curse because I feel like it's really propelled me to like, push myself, get out of my comfort zone, like do more and like be better. But it also is this like very heavy weight to carry is like having so much pressure that you put on yourself and trying really hard to step back and not putting the weight of the world on yourself. And knowing that I will never as an individual, like right the wrongs and and what am I trying to say? That like justice, liberation, those like humanity components, I cannot do that. I cannot right those wrongs as an individual. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that I can be complacent. You know, there are absolutely things that I can do. And so it's definitely this like give and take of like, I am deeply passionate. I care so deeply, but then also being like, sometimes I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like it's too much, you know, Mm -hmm. like... uh, I work in um, I work in a nonprofit space, um, working to get young people engaged in politics, and it's incredible. I couldn't do anything else. Like I'm so deeply passionate about it, and I feel very lucky to have a job that I like care so deeply for, um, and get to connect with like really amazing. My coworkers are amazing, like like minded peers um, who push me. But it's also I know we all really do struggle with like it's heavy stuff. It's, it's not, uh, we, we care deeply and that's why we do this work. So it has mental health implications as well, for sure. 
Oh yeah. And I think that that is something you constantly, like, like you said, you're constantly writing that, you know, at what point is it too much? At what point do I really have to start thinking about self-preservation versus helping others and doing the work that not a lot of other people are are able to or willing to do. Mm-hmm. And so feeling mm-hmm. that calling, but also realizing that somehow that calling is leading to a sense of self-destruction that you feel absolutely. like you're implicit in. Yeah, absolutely. And that savior complex too. Yeah, I like, know, right? Oh my God. There's so we, many interesting I think elements. We feel that pretty I think heavy. we do. And I think, and I think people... I think because we are, yeah, because we think really, really deeply. And I think we are like really run by our emotions. Like it's, I love having a positive spin on ADHD. And I think there's so many wonderful qualities about it, but it is not a superpower. Like it just drives me crazy Mm -hmm. when people like are dismiss the emotional gravity of life with ADHD and are sort of like, no, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And like that toxic positivity just drives me crazy. And I certainly don't feel like, well, that you have to swing in the opposite direction and talk about how it's like a real, it's a disorder and we need to take it seriously. But I, you know, cause that bothers me too, (laughs) but I just feel like it's so nuanced. And, and that's why I feel like we kind of are, are figuring it out one conversation at a time, right? Of just being uh-huh. like, what is happening and how do we deal with it? You're right that that's such a toxic approach. I mean, I know I definitely have skills. I have things about ADHD that I definitely like and make me a better person, but we really got to step back on that one and, and think about everyone's like power and privilege and the identities we hold and the space that we grew up in and the ways that we can succeed. And I know for me, like, I'm very grateful, but I'm also very aware of like how my identity and my privilege growing up, like really did help me succeed and get to the space that I'm in now. And that, you know, you could look at me and say like, oh, you're successful. You're like a successful person. And the the metric that we use is, is just, it's so rooted in like what export we put out like how productive we are for society and you know even in school like really marking students for things that are you know just training them to be good workers and and get things done and productivity and productivity and the output and this and not about the means not about how we're doing it what we're getting there and so like I think yeah there's there's definitely a bunch of skills I've also struggled very greatly but, you know, I grew up where my parents could afford to send me to tutoring and they would help me. And my brother could get put into a private school because they could afford that. Um, I grew up in a pretty moderately wealthy, like white suburban home. And like, how did that when I had those really impulsive outbursts and I got in trouble in a bigger way than just being reactive in class or something? I was given a pass because, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, she's like a cute white woman. She's like a sweet, you know, like all these things we put on women and we put on whiteness and we put on the, the passes that we give to mm-hmm. uh, people because of their identities. Like, I, I do think I hate hearing that, like, oh, it's a superpower, because I just think like how much of that mindset comes from. The accommodations able, that you had yeah, in your life. Yeah, yeah absolutely. that other people don't have. And mm-hmm. I just think we kind of need to step back on that and be like, okay, um, we all work hard. That's true. We all are struggling, but like some of us have different tools and different resources. And I think that gets minimized when you start talking about that, um, that approach. Yeah, no, that's a great point. One thing I like to ask my guests is if you could Mm -hmm. rename ADHD to something that's a little less confounding or problematic. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about what you would, what would you might call it? Yes, I have. And I've thought about this, like even before, uh, before this question was posed, because I've never really felt like that ADHD, like label fits. Um, I mean, it does in a million ways, but it also doesn't. I, I don't have a name. I will say, but I, I wrote down regulation because I think that's a key thing. I think that's a key misunderstanding and a misconsensus. And I think something that has to do with processing, something that has to do with regulation, I think those are my, uh, that's the direction I would go um, for renaming it because I know I just, I don't have a deficit of attention. Like, 
I really don't. It's just that I can't regulate it. I can't um, get myself always to do what I know needs to be done. Or even sometimes I don't remember what I need to be doing that needs to be done. It's, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than not having that Mm -hmm. um, focus piece. Yeah. Well, and like you said, it's, it really doesn't hit home until you start really understanding the emotional aspects and the sensory processing, right? Where you're like, mm-hmm. those were the two things that really hit home for me. So the fact that mm-hmm. neither sensory or emotional is mm-hmm. mentioned in the DSM or even in the in the name itself, I find just sends people down the wrong rabbit holes. <laughs> I love thinking about how by the time you're 45, you know, how much more will we know about this neuro, about neurodiversity and how many more accommodations will we see in the classrooms or in our workplaces? And hopefully this pandemic and working from home has blown up a bit of that like nine to five narrative that so many of us struggled with so much. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, it'll leave open this idea that like, everybody has their own productivity windows and everybody yes. works differently and that we can, yes. we can accommodate for all of those. There's not Absolutely. like that worker, that industrialized worker. Mentality. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> of course. I, I, you're preaching the choir here. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I will um, look forward to seeing how it goes over the next 20 years, but <laughs> thank you. Meantime. Me too. A little bit of eminent, eminent doom mixed with, we'll see what happens. Uh, we're rolling with it, so. Awesome. All right, well, thanks again, Reagan. It was it. lovely to talk to you. What a great interview with Reagan. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I got a chance to check in with Reagan again. She's 27 now, so let's hear what's going on with her these days. Yeah, so basically, I, you know, I'm about to release my 150th interview and I started getting reflective and was like, huh, like looking back over episodes, would I be able to pick favorites? And I was like, I can't pick favorites. They're all my everybody, they're all my babies. Everybody's my favorite. But I did kind of wanted to re-release some episodes that really have stayed with me over the last couple of years and like have really just felt like deserved if somebody missed it, you know, I really wanted to highlight it. And yours definitely stuck out for me. It's one of the episodes that has always I always think about a lot, especially having a daughter and, and, you know, just the generation, some of the generational things that we spoke about. And so I was like, I just wanted to re-release some of these episodes, but also get a chance to catch up with you because it's been almost two years since this interview. And so how's it going? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I know. I'm so, I, first, I just, I really appreciate that. I'm very flattered and like your kind words are, are really meaningful. So thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, secondly, yeah. What is time? Uh, I was like, how long has it been? I feel like everything is in this weird, uh, permanent, like time blindness, you know what I mean? And all that. So, um, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing really well. It's been definitely a few years. I was thinking, you know, what's changed, like where in ADHD and in other things, like, you know, did some reflecting and I don't know. I think the main thing that I wanted to kind of speak to an update was, uh, well, I turned 26. Um, and you know, that meant I got the boot from my parents' health insurance plan, which was probably the worst birthday gift I've ever gotten. (laughs) And yeah, you know, that was like actually a really big thing that I was dealing with for a, a while after, um, I lost access to my parents' health insurance. And, you know, I, I was, lucky enough, I had a job that offered health insurance, but the benefits just were not comparable. And basically almost immediately, I was not able to access my ADHD medications. It became like a really big executive dysfunction uh, nightmare, which is like me calling insurance, the pharmacy, uh, my doctor, the psychiatrist, playing phone tag. And, you know, the whole, I sure everyone, (laughs) everyone's been there to some extent, but yeah, that was that was definitely uh, something that I think, you know, being in my mid 20s, I didn't really recognize the impact that that was going to have until it happened. And I lost, you know, access to my meds that were keeping me in a lot of ways, like, well and stable. And so that was definitely tough. I wound up changing jobs, actually. It wasn't really exclusively because of that, but it was definitely a main motivating factor for me was 
really needing to like prioritize my health, prioritize my mental health and find the right care for me. So I'm in a new position now. I have access to much better health insurance benefits. I feel very grateful and appreciative of that. But you know, when I was going through that, it was like a really draining emotionally, like very taxing and very frustrating experience for sure. Oh yeah. I feel like it is at every age. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, gosh. Wow. And, and reflecting back over some of the stuff that we had talked about when you were dealing with this, you know, were there any strategies that did end up working for you? I mean, you know, to some extent it's like, you're going up against it's David and Goliath when you've got all these big insurance companies and and all this. Um, But, you know, what did help was like my partner being very supportive and, you know, with the folks that I trust in my like network, being open with them of like, this is what I'm dealing with. And this has been basically a part-time job on top of my full-time job, which I was struggling with. And I think that support and that community, like, you know, folks really understand and we're very supportive to the extent that, you know, just saying that really sucks. Like that sounds so hard, you know, it, it goes a long way. Um, and it really helped me to continue like that self-advocacy and continue being persistent. I don't know. My strategy is just keep writing things down and keep making lists over and over and like, you know, until I can't avoid it, <laughs> um, which, which worked. And the other thing that I'll say that helped, um, was actually getting connected with a local pharmacy. So I stopped working with the chains. And I don't know if that's something everybody has access to. I didn't realize there was a local pharmacy near me. Um, but it's great when someone actually picks up the phone and you don't have a 20-unit phone tree and hold time to get. That made a huge, huge difference in just my like ability to even pick up the phone and be like, okay, I know I'm going to talk to an actual person. And they're going to respond and help. And I would say that that really helped. That's great advice. Yeah, give yourself some space. It's a lot of time. It's it's a big process. It it took me months and it it was tough. Like I feel like now looking back I'm in a much better place. I have access to my meds, like I've made the adjustments I needed, but it was really frustrating and it felt very draining to have to keep doing that. So just like know your know your limits and do what's reasonable, but also know that like you're fighting a really difficult system with executive dysfunction. Like it's just going to be a process. Yeah. That's one of the things um, I, I feel like self-advocacy is such one of the things that I am very encouraged by going back to school and being in a classroom environment with so many students who are in their twenties is seeing how your generation is so much better at advocating already, even, you know, even though there are so many struggles, I feel like that's such like my jaw just drops when I listen to some of how, just how smart everyone is, but also just like what, like not accepting shit, like from professors or just being like, this is not acceptable. And like, and, you know, and me sitting there just being like, can you do that? Are you allowed to say that? Like, I'm just in awe of the level of advocacy that is already existing in your generation. I'm like, yes, this is amazing. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I just had a similar experience with a kid who was in high school, like saying something to a doctor and advocating for him himself in front of me where my job was on the floor. And I was like, wow, like kids these days, they're just saying what they need. And, you know, I was like, I feel so old, like, oh my gosh, like this kid's in high school. And I was so scared. Just, I would have never said that. You know what I mean? Like good for him. And I'm like, I, it really is, I think, a trend and a shift and it's necessary. It's unfortunate for sure. But, you know, for me, it made it, I mean, I, I needed my meds and Took months, but I got them. So <laughs> I, I'm very grateful. Like celebrating those wins, I think, is just as important when you're dealing with this system and and advocating. You know, like taking a minute to be like, that was a big accomplishment, and I made it happen. Like that's that's great, uh, and I'm better off for it. So I think sitting in the wins is another thing I'd really like to think of, like being proud of yourself and letting yourself like express that and be like, I, I can do this. <laughs> I'm doing it. Right. I think that that idea that like embracing the fact that we are phenomenal and eccentric (laughs) is one of the is one of the biggest changes that I've had. And one of the things I work on with a lot of my clients, too, which is like 
asking for help and asking for support is a sign of maturity. It's a sign of responsibility. It's a sign of strength. It's not something to be embarrassed about, right? Um, and, you know, so often we get trapped in this narrative of like, um, you know, I have to have tried all, I have to have exhausted all of my own resources before I can ask for help. I'm like, where did that, like, we need to drill that out of ourselves. Right. No, that's definitely, definitely true. Um, yeah. So I think that's kind of what I've had going on. I'm trying to think what else I'm pursuing my hobbies. I feel like for the first time in a long time, I've never really been able to like do that and actually follow up with something, not just spend a ton of money and then, you know, (laughs) forget about it. I can say my gardening supplies are actually being used one year later. And that has been really nice. Um, growing some, uh, tomatoes, peppers. Uh, It's been a really good experience. My partner and I have been really trying to, you know, get creative and and kind of start growing and start playing around with things in the garden and learning flowers. And I found a new interest for me. You know, I never would have probably gotten so hyper fixated and stuck with it if I didn't know I had ADHD. Like if I didn't have this diagnosis, I think I'd still be spinning around and around. And so that's something else that I think about is, um, you know, I've really been trying to prioritize the things that bring me joy, the things that um, give me peace outside of work. You know, like I know work is a big thing for me. It's a lot of my stress and anxiety, but I really try to um, think about managing my ADHD in the scope of the things that bring me happiness and joy and not just, you know, I need to do this to stay, uh, to, to pay rent or to keep my health insurance and really working hard on that. Um, and just mindfulness, I think has been a big piece of that. Right. And just understanding that like having boundaries around work and, and putting, investing in your free time and investing in your happiness will actually make you better at your job, as opposed to feeling like I have to give, you know, 80 hours a week and get totally to the point of burnout. It's like, no, actually, the more you invest in your personal self, the better you will be. And, and in all ways is I think that's a difficult lesson at every age. (laughs) It's really hard. I'm not a morning person and, you know, I have to be up at work early every morning, but I, you know, I try like little things where you can, I try to go out with my dog every morning for just 10 minutes. If I wind up sitting out with her and, you know, we do snuggles like, or I wind up watering some plants or, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, just being like, okay, before I start work, I've got 10 minutes outside. I think that's really helpful for me. So trying to just like weave, weave things that are, I don't want to say easy. It's never easy. And I frequently don't do these things, but like, that's my goal is like, we've been things that should be uh, simple to add into your life and be able to take care of myself and, you know, then go to work and show up and be present and not frazzled. (laughs) It makes a big difference than when I sign off at the end of the day and I think it's just all really connected and I I try to be very holistic with my approach to like well-being and and self-care. So I think it's tough. It's a lot of work, but I feel really good. You know, I'm, uh, oh my gosh, I'm 27 now. And yeah, I feel like I'm at a good point in my life with my future and my job and, you know, my partner and I are looking to move and we've got just a lot of big things in the works and it feels like it took a lot of hard work on on my part and a lot of barriers and struggles. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just feel like I definitely would not be where I am now if I had not been diagnosed with ADHD. Like I just, I keep coming back to that important for me, getting a diagnosis in my mid twenties, like changed everything. It's definitely like, it's not too late. It really helped me. It, you know, I wish I could go back and like do some things over live my childhood self with a different understanding, but I'm also like, well, I'm here now. So I'm trying to, to do that as I, as I go and like build in that compassion and and care. And yeah, I, I think I feel a lot better off than I was without a diagnosis and without this understanding of how my brain works. Yeah, I know. Right. I feel that way too. When, even when I speak to women who are like in their sixties or, or beyond who have been diagnosed with that feeling of just hope and grief, obviously, all of the things, but yeah, but really just feeling like, oh my goodness, this is so profoundly insightful. 
Now, I know I got a lot of great feedback from this episode, uh, a lot of people who really appreciated your perspective. But did you share the episode with anyone in your life? Um, you know, it's so funny. I I only shared this with a few close friends. I feel so self-conscious, I guess. I don't know. I just get really nervous. Um, it felt like something that I wanted to be able to be open and like myself in. And so I was thinking with this favorite episode when this airs, I, I might be a little bit uh, more open to sharing it. But, you know, it's like, if you Google my name, I know it'll come up. It's not hidden, but I also am not trying to like put it out there for everyone in that way all the time. Yeah, no, I hear you. I always joke about the fact that like I accidentally came out on Facebook because I thought I was posting on, I thought I was posting on my podcast. I ended up posting on my, <laughs> on my personal feed and I was like, whoops. Oh, well. And I was like, that's a very ADHD thing to do. <laughs> Such a moment. Oh, well, and it's out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, I just, I'm grateful for the chance to not only catch up and, and see you again, but also just to, you know, be able to thank you for the influence that you've had on me and, and how much your conversation meant to me and how much it stayed with me. So, so thank you for being vulnerable and sharing yourself. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, that's very nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. <laughs>